Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities needed it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Today, I talk with Salt Lake City Mayor Erin Mendenhall. When she took office in January 2020, she thought she'd be focused on how to manage equity and the environment in the nation's fastest growing city. Then COVID hit. She's been working tirelessly ever since to protect her community, even as she faced threats to her life and political battles with the legislature. She's emerged from the crisis more optimistic about her community's ability to respond care for each other, and build a better, more inclusive community with lessons for all of us. Listen to a progressive mayor's thoughtful vision for and passionate commitment to her community. Enjoy. Mayor Mendenhall, welcome to an honorable profession. It is wonderful to be speaking with you today. It is an honor to be speaking with you today and to be the mayor of Salt Lake City. I'm still excited, even after all of 2020, when I wake up in the morning, it's still joy for me. That is good to hear. And I want to hear a little bit about that. You you were sworn in uh, as mayor in January, 2020. This could not have been at all what you've would have expected your first uh, (laughs) 18 months in office to be like, can you talk a little bit about the experience over the last year? And then I want to hear how you and your community are doing now. Sure. Yeah. You know, being able to connect with other mayors over the course of the last 18 months has been uh, one of the most grounding and supportive things that I've been able to do because you you can sometimes feel like a loner as a mayor of a capital city in particular, experiencing just the day-to-day work that a capital city goes through. But 2020 opened up in a deep and intentional way a lot of the issues that we have been working on in in a mostly superficial manner for decades. And and I'm grateful ultimately that we have this opportunity to be especially at the city level where we have we have the opportunity to help our neighbors. We have the opportunity to change the outcome for people right here in the community and to do the the but for city engagement work of changing the way we grow as a city. So I think I've actually aged in dog years since I started this job in January of 2020. Uh, I did a Zoom uh, you know, interview with a, an elementary school class sort of at the beginning of the pandemic and I invited them when, when it was safe to, to come to City Hall and I'd give them a tour because we've got a great historic building. So just recently, I finally got to meet this class. The first hand shoots up and a young girl said, why do you have gray hair? Because you had black hair on the Zoom. <laughs> 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 I 
and that was a that was a perfect way to say, you know, it's been it's kind of been a year. It's been a long year, <laughs> <laughs> but ultimately. I could not be in, I couldn't ask to be in elected office in a city at a better time over the course of my entire lifetime. This is the best time to be doing public service uh, because we get to work with the systems that honestly aren't broken. They were built to serve the way that they serve and to not serve some the way that they do not serve. So we get to fix inequities and it's thrilling right now. So Salt Lake City's, we're excited. This is a community of altruistic, progressive politics, environmentally focused, culturally diverse, and a celebratory community. And we're tenacious about keeping it that way. And if you've never been to Salt Lake City, it's different than the state of Utah. I'll often say that it's the political pendulum swing from whatever your stereotype might be of what Utah and Utahns are like. And Salt Lake City, over really more than a century, has become sort of that bastion of a place for progressive politics and and people who want to live the life they were meant to live and support each other and finding that, that their own unique path. First of all, let me just say, couldn't agree more. I, after a trip uh, to a conference on innovation and government in Salt Lake City, uh, hosted by your county mayor, Ben McAdams at the time. I learned about a nurse family partnership program and investing in young kids and their moms in the first couple of years of life and mm-hmm. basically copied the program and invest and did it here because Salt Lake City in so many ways on housing and homelessness is a model for cities large and small across the country. And so if, if people haven't, they should pay attention to what to what you're doing there because it it is impactful and it's and it's really a community that works collaboratively. To, uh, to address the toughest challenges. Thanks, Ryan. I appreciate that. As you mentioned, it is a blue progressive dot in a red state. And I think navigating COVID has been a real challenge to mayors because you have a responsibility to your community, but you don't necessarily have right. all the legal authorities and the services to, to serve people in a pandemic. Can you talk a little bit about some of your efforts to try to keep your community safe and and navigate the difficult politics of COVID? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's been unique because as this, this historic city that's you know older than the state of Utah, actually, in many ways, we don't have public health experts. I rely, as cities across the state of Utah and, and many cities around the country, on county and state health departments to be those experts for us. That is wholly unique in the experiences I've had since being in elected office in Salt Lake City for over the, almost the last eight years. It's, it's difficult to not have a staff person who's ready to brief you each morning on the community impacts, the development of the vaccine, how we can start to strategize, you know, late last year, early this year for deployment of the vaccine. We were really reliant on other branches of government. And at the state level, of course, it's a supermajority Republican presence there. And uh, part of the reason, just to take one step back, that I wanted to be the mayor um, after serving two terms as a city councilwoman here in the city, I, being a liberal, being a woman, really, in the state of Utah that ranks either 49th or 50th each year for the status of women, I have learned also as an environmental advocate 
in this state that you get more done if you stay at the table and you keep the conversation going than you do when you start throwing fists and walk away out of frustration quickly. I know how to throw fists if I need to, but most of the time I'm going to do my best to breathe and stay in a conversation. And I think our city gets more when we do that. So um, I was grateful going into 2020 that I, for one, knew my city because of my work as a council person. And I was ready to trust my department directors enough to give them the space to innovate, really change on a dime, change the way we work and deploy services, but keep our services going. But also that I have a functional relationship with our Republican state folks, even a good relationship on most accounts. They knew my heart. And, and although we saw differently at times about mask mandate, there wasn't a, a knee-jerk reaction from the governor to take my authority away. Now, the legislature reacted differently and ended up uh, changing in June of last year so that no city could make any restrictions more stringent than the state had without the permission of the legislature. But even with that, we, we kept at having honest conversations, trying as best as we can to be transparent about the data that we're using and allowing them to reflect on the data as they saw it so that we could hopefully come to a common understanding of that this is a data-based approach. It's not a political decision that we're making and remove some of the heat from those discussions. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I think we all followed these mayors who were having to confront their legislatures and their state governments as they were trying to keep their community safe by keeping mass mandates in place and then saw either that authority taken away or tremendous political pressure applied. I think I'd be remiss to not talk about the fact that you were also threatened, as we've seen many mayors be threatened, but specifically women mayors be threatened Mm -hmm. during this time. And can you talk a little bit about that experience and, you know, how you how you managed it uh, with your you and your family through a very difficult time? Sure. We shortly after the murder of George Floyd, we had um, what ended up being uh, what started as a very beautiful, peaceful protest, thousands of people in the streets of Salt Lake City um, saying enough is enough with uh, police brutality, systems of oppression, and, and people coming together in a beautiful way. And that, that was co-opted, unfortunately, a few hours into that event by some individuals that really had nothing to do with the movement that we're all taking part in. And rendered a lot of destruction in our city, uh, ended up flipping a police car over, lighting it on fire, and, and did quite a lot of damage on a number of buildings in our downtown core. Many people were injured. Fortunately, no one lost their life that day. But it started what uh, ended up resulting in about 300 protest events over the next nine months here in our capital city. And we really welcome, we welcome the state to exercise their First Amendment rights on our city hall grounds, um, which is a traditional place for people to begin or end protests and rallies. Um, we, and we do welcome that. But the, the violence that took advantage of some of these gatherings was, was disappointing and distracted, I think, from what was trying to be said at the time. And of course, on, in situations like that, some individuals 
also take advantage of uh, directing their own frustration, anger, hatred toward whoever might be in a, in a perceived position of power. So I, I really saw it as my role, not, uh, you know, personally at me. And yet I take my safety seriously and, and absolutely the safety of my family. So we worked closely with our police department at the time and um, tried to get the best intelligence we could to get our family out of harm's way and but not so far that I couldn't keep marrying while we made it through those tough couple of weeks through uh, June and into July. Yeah, it's been a uh, it's it's been a crisis on top of crisis on top of crisis. Can you talk about uh, your efforts to address police brutality issues and inequity in Salt Lake City? Yes, back in August of 2020, I enacted the first major police reforms that our police department has seen in its 170-year history. They addressed body camera requirements and and consequences for officers who may intentionally or on multiple occasions unintentionally turn off their body cameras. It dealt with use of force policy and the requirement that officers under almost every circumstance exhaust any other effort before uh, at least using lethal force. Also that we have a, at least a, a minimum of two levels of review of every use of force case in the department. It was about search and seizure and, and gaining the permission of individuals before uh, vehicles are searched, having that in writing or at least on body camera with the person consenting and a number of other reforms that made sense based on what is happening in other departments around the country. And really, honestly, some of them, like a, explicitly banning the use of chokeholds, we haven't been using chokeholds in Salt Lake City for many years, but uh, we took this action as an opportunity to explicitly make those things clear in our policy. Uh, we did the training. It takes about you know, 45 days to get those trainings deployed. And so by October, we were up and running with our department under these new reforms. And we've seen case and incident after incident of the benefits of these trainings rolling out. And our police officers in Salt Lake City are the best police officers in the United States of America. And I I say that to you, not because we get it right every time, but because we have a department that is constantly wanting to do better, constantly looking at how they can improve. And it's that incessant curiosity and willingness to look inside at the department, at the department and the training and the policies and the practices is what makes us, makes our folks the best. And I'm proud of the way they've been working, but this is work that's going to continue because we created a commission on racial equity and policing that's made up of a, a spectrum of community members, BIPOC community members, people with different experience and histories coming together and um, have been working for nearly a year now on evaluating those policies, evaluating the police budget and also the culture um, and ha- have just uh, recently issued their second set of recommendations on how we can continue to improve. So we're going to, we're going to keep moving forward with that community-based engagement and evaluation. 
And can you also talk about other efforts to address equity from a educational, economic, from another other policy perspectives? Yes. In March, before before George Floyd was killed, before this movement gained so much momentum, I, it, but at the beginning of the pandemic, I asked our city council to fund a citywide equity master plan, as well as a gentrification mitigation plan. Uh, Utah, the state of Utah, has the fastest growing population of any state in the nation. Uh, very much of that growth, especially the multifamily growth, has been happening in Salt Lake City. And what has been historically resilient communities in Salt Lake City are being displaced by these market forces. And um, I think if you walk down the street and you ask a, a, a random sampling of Salt Lakers why they live here, many of the top reasons would be the diversity the small local business focus of our communities and the character of our neighborhoods. Now, those are things that we do not want to lose. There's the but for of city work coming in. So we started our equity and gentrification mitigation work early on last year, and it's coming to the community level now. That equity plan will look both internally at how we measure and track for equity among our more than 3,000 employees of Salt Lake City Corporation, but also how we're engaging our community. As a follow-up question, because I think it's so that work around equity and reducing the impacts of, of growth and the inequitable impacts of it, how do you manage and plan for the scale of growth that, that your city's seeing? Some cities are trying to manage decline in populations, uh, which is a challenge, but managing growth can also be as big a challenge, if not more so. What, how do you think about that, and what will Salt Lake City look like in uh, a decade? Probably not unlike you and other uh, mayors and, and people who've been in this role before. When I fly into a city, I'm counting how many cranes I see out there on the ground. And if you flew into Salt Lake City today into our beautiful brand new airport just opened in September, uh, it's proximate to our downtown. You would see almost a dozen cranes, I think, this morning. Our skyline is in a rising position right now, and it's undergoing the most dramatic transformation that we've seen in several decades. The way that the city engages in ensuring not only that we have sufficient housing, but really that we have the diversity of housing types to the affordability spectrum that we need in order to maintain a culturally rich and diverse community. We do it through zoning and we're doing it through money. There's a, a lot of nuance below that as well as funding and working with local nonprofit organizations, community organizations who are helping to knit together the housing needs in our community today with new opportunities or preservation of existing affordable housing. So some of the zoning changes that we're making are figuring out with our communities, where do we want to grow? Do you want to grow in a broad uh, mid-level way? Do you want to concentrate and grow up in our neighborhood centers and try to keep many of our historic neighborhoods intact? Also, what is the size and shape of that housing? With the fastest growing population in the country, we have big families in the state of Utah. The majority of the population growth is our kids. And uh, no matter what you're, where you lay on the political spectrum, when you follow that value ladder back, the majority of people in the state of Utah 
have a primary concern around wanting their kids to be able to call this place home, wherever home is to them, that they be able to fit into the economy, be successful, find and afford housing. So whether or not we have family-sized units coming up, we have a majority, vast majority of single-bedroom or two-bedroom apartment units being built. We want to see more family-sized units being built in these apartment structures, condominium structures as well. We also want to see tiny, tiny homes, micro home, micro apartments. Um, we just launched a tiny home pilot project for Salt Lake City. The entire state of Utah doesn't have a tiny home community, but we've been watching them grow. We've watched some successful and some less successful around the country. And we are launching our first tiny home pilot project here, which is focused on enticing some of our chronically homeless population who generally refuse shelter or housing placement options to come and live in this more stable environment. It's also about micro units, studio sized, single room occupancy, where we've got a single bedroom you can rent week to week and you share a kitchen and a bathroom with four or five other units. We used to have 800 single rooms available in Salt Lake City just 40 years ago. But with all of the growth redevelopment that's happened, we have 50 units left today. So we're adjusting our zoning to expand the application of those single room occupancy options along our, our transit corridors in the city. And then we raised taxes in 2018. The state cited, they announced that they would be citing the new state prison in our city, uh, west of the airport in an undeveloped area. And their sort of gift <laughs> to the city, we, it wasn't really a gift, was that uh, permission to raise our sales tax. They gave us a, an extra capacity. It took a couple of years, but when I was chair of the city council in 2018, we made that move. And we dedicated the ongoing revenue from that sales tax in portion to affordable housing. We dedicated some of it to adding additional police officers so that we could have community-based, we could have sufficient officers for community-based policing. We bought up bus service. So we tell the buses where to run um, to connect our west and east sides in our city. And we're repaving and fixing our streets uh, and building bike lanes as much as we can when we do so. Wow, that sounds exciting but also overwhelming in trying to trying to manage that growth uh, even when the, that growth includes a state state run prison in your <laughs> in your jurisdiction yeah not the residents you thought you were going to gain as the fastest growing place in the nation <laughs> but wow. they'll be coming they're coming you talked about the value and sort of the bipartisan you know premium placed on on families and kids. Can we talk about how you got into all this, which was through joining Utah Moms for Clean Air and then co-founding Breathe Utah and how you connected sort of environmental issues to to families and kids and, you know, is this was this all running for office all uh, on your horizon for a long time or how did you find your way into into running for office? I'll answer the the last part first and say, no, no, running for office was not on my horizon in the beginning of my work around the environment and air policy in Utah. And I don't think that's unique, actually. When we uh, survey women in the state of Utah, and, and perhaps it's true in other parts of the nation as well, it's, you've got to ask a woman to run for office an average of seven times before she says yes. 
it's not the same for men. And as much progress as we've made as women in the United States of America, we've got a long ways to go. And I, part of my passion is setting up girls and young women in Salt Lake City to see themselves in my office and beyond, see themselves there now as children, because I, I didn't imagine that I, I could do this then as much as my parents believed in me and loved me and encouraged me. I didn't dare dream that I would go here. I just kept pushing my boundaries toward what I felt in my heart and in my community mind I wanted to do, um, even if I didn't quite know how to do it or what would come next. And the path sort of revealed itself. But I I got on this path, I would say, primarily because uh, I lost my father to non-Hodgkin's lymphoma when I was nearly 14. And not until I was studying biology as an undergrad did I, I read a book called uh, Living Downstream by a woman named Sandra Steingraber. And she writes in the book, in part, about the very county that my father grew up in in rural Illinois and his generation and this impact of DDT spraying in the crops and the fields. And then subsequently, in, in, genera- in decades after, uh, high incidence of cancer in these adults, um, the very cancer that my father died from. And he would tell us how he and his sister would hear the planes coming to spray DDT on the crops and they'd run outside so they could run under it like snow. It fell on them like snow and covered their bodies. And it, it was heartbreaking and enlightening as a, a young college student to read about this possibility that my father's early demise was in part possibly due to exposure to DDT, overexposure to DDT as a child. And Utah has, at different times of the year, some of the worst air quality in the nation because of our bowl-shaped valley and our sort of the concentration of emissions that happens here. And as I became a, a mother 15 years ago, having my own children and not wanting to ever see a fate for them like I, I, like happened to my father. Um, that's really what propelled me into finding a way to move beyond my poster as a protester. Because I, I did a lot of protests for a long time, and I, I really wanted to be at the table inside the building where we were outside protesting. I wanted to be at the table having those conversations, looking at the fence, talking about the data, and then figuring out what the best decision is for the people. And so I just kept trying to find that pathway to get there. Wow, that's a that's a powerful story. I'd like to ask you a little bit about that, the move from from protesting from the outside to legislating on the inside. And I think, you know, over the past couple of years, rightfully so, we've seen young people take to the streets and online and protest a lot of real injustices that they that all of us see in our society but there's a resistance to to sort of joining the system and moving to the inside how do you how did you make that decision how do you keep your the principles and the reasons that you ran for government uh, ran for office or went to those protests in the first place alive as you have, as you have to work through the sausage making of of politics. Well, if anyone's worked in nonprofit world, <laughs> you know that 
Uh, you wear a lot of hats, especially when you're starting out with a new nonprofit. And volunteers are really unpaid employees. It's really difficult to keep momentum going in perpetuity when you're working under those circumstances. And I, I honestly, I think it's probably a little from column A and a little from column B that made me realize I needed to come up with a, a more sustainable approach to making changes and, and combining that with the, the lack of an invitation that, that we collectively were getting as protesters to be a part of the decisions that we so wanted to be a part of. And you mentioned I started with Utah Moms for Clean Air, which is a very protest-oriented organization, and ended up leaving that nonprofit with a majority of the founders of it to found Breathe Utah to intentionally be a moderate voice. Now, protest is a beautiful American tradition and tool for clearing and opening space for conversation and directing you know, the voice and the values of the people to the people who should be listening and can help make those decisions happen. But I found um, in our environmental advocacy work that there was a chasm between the protest voices and those who were making the decisions. And so we founded our organization to be science-based and a policy-oriented organization. And I'm still grateful today for all of the voices who come together exercising those First Amendment rights, doing community-based organizing to keep the momentum going on air quality. But we learned just through the School of Hard Knocks how to show up at the legislature and ask for a meeting with key representatives and explain who we were and what our goal was in trying to assist in good policymaking, ability to do research that they may feel like they need and not have the staff to do at the legislative level um, to bring data and, and science back to them so they could confidently make some good choices to clean up our air. And that's a, that's a, that's a long, slow road, but we made some quick progress actually. And it was inspiring to feel like, wow, we're really making lasting change. Like the fact that the majority of pollution in Utah has come from our vehicles for a long time, but there was nothing in the driver's ed curriculum to teach drivers that or to talk about how you could uh, be idle-free or other ways to maintain your vehicle to reduce emissions. So I, I, we worked with the legislature and got that into place through the legislative process and then had the chance to work with the school, the Utah school board, and write the curriculum to go into the driver's ed. And that, that really lit the fire in me so that when a city council position opened up and, and literally I was asked eight or nine times, to think about running for it, I finally said yes. And then tell me about the decision to run for mayor. It's a very, very big job, intensely personal job, because uh, you have a relationship with your community in a way that no other elected official really does. What was the campaign like? And then is being mayor like what you thought it was going to be like, given that you there's no way you had known that there was a pandemic and economic crisis and and everything else uh, about to hit you. Yeah, I, I was the last to jump into the race. I was the eighth. And up through the primary, I, I raised the least amount of money <laughs> of all the candidates that were, you know, working and raising money out there. But I, I ended up winning the primary pretty handedly and, and surprised a lot of people. 
I love people. That's what keeps me going in politics. I enjoy making friends at the grocery store and, and knowing all my neighbors. And it really fuels me. But I felt as I listened to these seven other candidates jumping into the race that I had something unique to offer the voters, a unique perspective and unique experience coming from within City Hall, but having a, a different perspective than our, our previous mayor and, and and a temperament that's different also, I think, from uh, a lot of Salt Lake City mayors in the past. But the the opportunity to put something out there that was unique to my heart and my love for this city and these people was what drove me into doing it. And even though no one, no mayor in this nation could have predicted what they would be going through in 2020, uh, I'd do it again in a heartbeat. It's, it's the, one of the greatest honors of my life and it's totally worth it. Um, I, I will be humbled <laughs> to the end of my day that I get to work for the people that I love and I care about in a city that is that's growing dramatically, but that we get to have a positive effect on how it grows and who benefits from that growth. And it's, it's just the most fantastic position I think I could imagine to be in. And I encourage anybody who you know, loves their community and, and has some opinions about how it should grow and, and who should be at the table to think about putting yourself out there and throwing your hat in the ring. What do your kids think about their mom being mayor and how are they experiencing it? I have three kids and they range from five to 15 years old. So they have a lot of different experiences of it, but they're all proud of me and my husband and I, um, my husband has, he was a city councilman, uh, which is very unique also for a mayor to have a spouse who really has a deep understanding of not just what the city's doing, but kind of how it feels personally. We wanted to make this a, as much a family experience as we can. So I love being able to take my kids to meet communities, experience things, to even uh, be able to see unique places that, that sometimes mayors get invitations to and business openings. Sometimes we get to travel and I'll, I'll, you know, make a family vacation out of it so that they can come along and feel like they're a part of this awesome experience. But I, I'm a little worried because I, I think my 15 year old wants to go into politics. So wow. I might've taken it too far. <laughs> it's a good sign. <laughs> Most 15-year-olds, it would be the exact opposite. They'd head in the exact opposite direction. So that's that's amazing. We'll see. He's 15. So I got to ask because so we're talking mid-June. The Utah Jazz are competing in the NBA playoffs. And it's, you know, it's it's both great basketball, but it's also a little bit of a return to normalcy after a very strange 18 months. What's it like having you know, having sort of these things come back online that that the whole world is watching, you know, your community at this time. It's thrilling. It's so fantastic. And we're so proud of the Utah Jazz, no matter what happens in this playoff series. Uh, it's, it's great to have the enthusiasm in our 
date back up to Stockton and Malone days when I was a kid and we ended up being defeated by the Bulls. But uh, we haven't been back to that kind of a fever pitch as a community. And it it's just tremendously fun to have our team doing so well. And we're going to be hosting the All-Star Game coming up uh, for the NBA here in Salt Lake City. And that's a thrill also. So it's great to see our community on the rise, but I can't say it enough that it's about, it's the but for of what the city does. And we, I see it as my, my job to amplify and support all of those community members who haven't had their voices heard, haven't had an invitation, haven't had a pathway to even accept an invitation to the opportunities of growth that are happening here. And that's, that's what keeps me going. And hopefully that's what you're going to see on the world stage when we also hope to secure a future winter Olympic games in either 2030 or 2034. Wow. Putting together an Olympic bid is a, in, in normal times, that would be a monumental thing right now. It's, uh, you know, one on a long list of, uh, of projects and issues to deal with. (laughs) (laughs) It is, but we are so ready. We're a state of sport. I love it. Can I ask a little bit about that, that tremendous growth you're seeing, uh, in your city is, is also growth you're seeing in your state. And as we head towards redistricting and reapportionment, what do you see as the political future of Utah and your community with, with that growth? I think that Utah is more purple than we actually want to acknowledge outside of Salt Lake City and Salt Lake County. And with the growth that's happening, I, I mentioned that the majority of it is from the, the children of current residents, but there is a, a great deal of net in migration from not only California and other nearby states, but outside of this nation as well. People coming in here, bringing different values and perspectives. And we're also seeing a a tendency in many demographics of youth to shift toward a more moderate standpoint with with the cultural evolution that's happening across the United States just in the last 15 years. Um, So I'm really hopeful that Utah as a state is becoming more and more moderate and that uh, the, the color of lavender suits us maybe more appropriately than all red. And speaking of that generational change, I think a good way to wrap up is to talk about we're in Pride Month and you've made efforts to increase equity for the LGBTQ communities. Can you talk a little bit about those efforts and and how you celebrate that diversity in your community during during the month of June? Yes, just uh, the first Sunday of June, we celebrate with a a giant parade, typically. Last year, we we didn't get to do that, but this year we had, I think something was even more meaningful, uh, a rally that we started at the Capitol, and I was honored to be able to speak at that, launch everybody off down on a long walk together. Thousands of people turned out, but what the focus was was on the cultural history of our LGBTQIA plus community in the state of Utah and uh, wrapping around our city hall this year was a walking museum outside and it documented that history in the most beautiful way. It taught me more than I thought I I could know. (laughs) I thought I knew a lot more than I ended up being revealed to me through this experience that we have had a a very strong LGBTQ population here for a very long time. 
And it also talks about the inequities and some of the legal hurdles and challenges that we are beginning to overcome as a state and put it into that national context. I thought it was, I, I loved the experience, but what was really beautiful was to hear how even young people who love the parade experience, it's, it's a, one of the best in the nation, really appreciated the focus on why we're doing what we're doing and why we have to stand up as allies. And there's almost no situation I can imagine where we shouldn't be ready to stand up and we shouldn't be ready to um, put our arm around that neighbor and that resident and call out inequity as we see it and then set to work immediately on remedying that. That is a great call to not just the people of Salt Lake City, but to across the country of what we have to do as we emerge from this crisis into a hopefully a, a, a better normal than we had before. I just want to thank you for your service. I can't imagine how hard this year and a half has been. And the optimism and your commitment to your community is clear. And it's wonderful to have you in the New Deal. Sorry. <laughs> Ryan, I have a dog too. <laughs> it's all right. You, I think you can imagine because you've been a mayor <laughs> and you went through 2020 as an American. So I appreciate the kindness and it's my honor and my pleasure to speak with you today and tell you a little more about how great Salt Lake City is. Thank you, Mayor. And I look forward to seeing you hopefully in person at a New Deal event uh, sometime soon. Yes. Amen to that. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Row Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.